Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In book two of his work on anger, particularly in chapters six through nine, Seneca considers some objections that a person might make to his position on anger. As a Stoic, he thinks that anger really has no productive or positive role in moral life. And the Stoics were all about valuing virtue and wisdom, wisdom as one of the virtues, but wisdom is also what guides the virtues. They hold out the exemplar of the wise person or sage. And so some people might say, well, you know, the virtuous person ought to get angry when they see people doing the wrong thing. And the wise person actually can tell what is good and bad and therefore should be, you know, happy to see the, the good deeds of good people and likewise should be angry at the wicked deeds of the bad or evil. So the question here is, shouldn't virtue and wisdom involve the response of anger at various forms of badness. And he'll actually, in you know, some of these chapters, give a lot of examples about how bad people can be. So, you know, he sees this as sort of a correlative. It's expressed this way. Just as virtue is kindly disposed to honorable good behavior, noble behavior, so should it greet disgraceful behavior with anger. And Seneca's first response to this is, what if one should say that virtue ought to be both abject, humilis, and magnificent, magnus. That is exactly what is meant when one wishes anger to be raised up and debased. So he's saying there's a bit of a contradiction there in the way that you're thinking about this. But then he gives a, let's say, much better argument based on analysis of our emotional states. And again, this is presuming some stoic psychology of the emotional emotions, you could say. So he talks about gladness and he uses two different words in these paragraphs, laetitia, which we often translate as joy as well, and gaudium. These are both positive affects towards things. We have gladness, which is derived from right action, laetitia ab recta factum, seeing the good things, the right things, the upright things being done by people. You feel good about that, right? You see somebody doing something good. That is your positive response. You can also be glad about your own right action as well. So that makes perfect sense, right? And he says that this is splendid and magnificent, but anger caused by another's wrongdoing, right? So responding to other people's wrongdoing with anger is, as he says, mean, sordida, the word that we get sorted from, like in a low class and stuff like that. And he talks about a pinched spirit is one way to translate it, angustia, right, of our mind. We could say narrow-mindedness is another way of translating it as well. So anger is not really going to be becoming of virtue, right? He says that, you know, it's a natural property of virtue to be glad and joyful. Being angry is no more in accord 
with virtues standing then is grief. And then he says something very, very interesting, particularly if we're thinking about the history of the emotions. Seneca is one of the early people to make this connection. He tells us that wrath has sadness as its companion and it inevitably turns to sadness either after it comes to feel regret or after it's rebuffed. So anger or wrath, ira and iracundia, he uses both of these terms here in this, has sadness, tristitia, as its companion. And other later authors, particularly in the Christian era, will note the connection between ira, anger, wrath, and Tristitia, sadness, depression, sorrow, however we want to translate it. So these are some very interesting points that he's making about the way our emotions work and which ones are good to have and which ones are not good to have. He also says something else that's very important with respect to virtue. He tells us that virtue will never make the mistake of imitating vices while seeking to check them. It holds that anger as such must be reprimanded, right? Anger is to be dealt with productively, which means oftentimes not getting angry or criticizing the anger, right? So it doesn't make sense for virtue to, as we often say, fight fire with fire. It ceases to be virtue by doing so. And here we see a a common trap that many people fall into. They assume that because they're kind of virtuous or on the way to virtue, they can engage in things that actually go against virtue because that's the right thing to do, which then leads to vice that vitiates their virtue that was developing. So that's the discussions of virtue as such. Then he turns to talking about the wise person. And and here he has a whole bunch of what we call counterfactuals. He's making arguments, making cases to say, no, no, we shouldn't fall into this. This is not what the wise person ought to be like. So What does he say? He tells us that if being angry at wrongdoing is proper for a wise man, he doesn't think that's the case, right? Then the greater the wrongdoings, the greater the anger is going to be, and he will be angry often. If follows, he says, the wise person will not only experience anger, they will not only feel anger, they will be wrathful by disposition. They will be irrecundus. If they're actually wise, they're going to see many more cases of people that will anger them, right? He goes and he says, we believe that neither great nor frequent anger has a place in the wise man's soul, right? And he says, a limit on anger cannot exist if anger must be felt in proportion to each person's behavior. Either you will be unjust if you feel the same degree of anger for different degrees of wrongdoing, if you play favorites, or for example, if you were to feel angry at one person doing the wrong thing, act, discharge your anger, and then not get as angry with the next person doing the same thing. If you're going to be wise, if you're going to be just, both of which are virtues for the Stoics, then you need to be angry in proportion to the wrongdoing. You need to treat people the way that they merit or deserve to be treated. As he says, you're going to be angry in the extreme if you feel anger's full heat as often as misdeeds merit wrath, right? So this is going to be a big trap. And he's suggesting all this to say, 
that's not the way the wise person is going to be. And then he gives us sort of a general principle that's quite important here. It's unworthy, indignus is the Latin term, for a wise person's passion, ad factus, their affect, their overall emotional state to be determined by another person's wickedness. This makes the wise person no longer free, no longer self-determining, no longer autonomous, we might say, to use a later vocabulary, because they're just responding to everything going on around them. You could imagine them as the ordinary person maybe has 20 buttons. The wise person has an infinity of buttons that can be pushed, right? This is not a wise way of being or a virtuous way of being. It doesn't make sense, he says. He goes on and he says, will the great Socrates no longer be able to return home wearing the same expression he had when he left? Meaning that he walks out the door, enters the marketplace, meets a bunch of jerks. Seneca is going to go on and detail this. If the wise person should be angry at shameful behavior and be riled and gloomy because of criminal behavior, he must be the most troubled man in the world. He'll pass his entire life in anger and grief. Will there be an instant when he'll not see things worthy of reproach. Whenever he leaves his home, he'll have to make his way through crowds of criminal and people who are greedy, spendthrift, shameless, and prosperous because of these very vices. So we'll see bad people not only doing bad things, but doing well in their eyes, at least, you know, in terms of property or reputation or pleasures because of their wrongdoing. And so if wisdom consists in getting ticked off at that sort of stuff, we're going to be angry the wiser we are. And that doesn't really make sense. And so he gives a bunch of examples. We don't need to actually go through all of these and we can skip ahead a little bit. I mean, he says, why go through individual cases? And then he goes through a whole bunch of other general examples as well. Key idea here, he says, the wise person will never cease to be angry once he begins if we follow this mistaken line of reasoning. Why? There is a full load of crime and vices everywhere. More crime is committed than punishment can remedy, right? We're engaged in a struggle, a vast struggle with wickedness. And now here Seneca engages in a little bit of pessimistic, ooh, things are worse now than they were before. And perhaps they 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 are, depending on how we look at it. I mean, a lot of Roman history is pretty full of crimes and vices. But Seneca's time, you know, he's living in the time of Nero. So yeah, maybe there's something to that. And we can think about our own time if it's radically different than this. He says, the desire to do wrong is greater every day. The sense of modest restraint is diminished. Regard for what is better and more just has been cast out. Lust imposes itself by force wherever it wishes. Nor are crimes now kept secret. They go on right before our eyes. Wickedness has been so broadcast and gained such power in everyone's breast. Innocence is not rare. It's non-existent. For surely the lawbreakers aren't isolated individuals or a mere handful, are they? No, they've arisen on every side as though a signal had been given. And then he says that what's been confounded here is right and wrong. People have lost their moral bearings. They, you can't even say that they have a moral compass they don't even have a little bit of a moral compass, right? So now if you're a wise person, how should you treat this? It doesn't mean that you have to pretend that everything is a-okay, that justice is still there, you know, even in injustice. You don't have to be unrealistically optimistic about things. 
But you don't also have to allow the injustices, the wrongdoing to lead you into the response of anger in Seneca's view, because that would actually be allowing those things to determine you rather than being self-determining, rather than sticking to your own sources of potential joy and happiness. So neither the wise nor the virtuous person, which I actually are the same person, are going to be radically dependent upon the, the world of others in which wrongdoing is going to take place. They will be able to live a happy life, even in the middle of bad people, precisely because they're not going to allow anger and the small-mindedness, the pinched spirit that, you know, is represented in that to determine their state of mind. So this is how Seneca deals with these potential objections about the virtuous and wise person and whether or not they should feel anger or not. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.